Welcome to Web3 with A6NZ Crypto. I'm your host, Sonal Choksi, and editor-in-chief here at A6NZ Crypto. But today, I invited Robert Hackett, features editor and head of special projects on our team, to guest host this episode, which is all about our latest State of Crypto report. And this year also introduces a new interactive tool, the State of Crypto Index, which helps visualize Web3 and tech progress towards building the next internet, which is the theme of the show. You can find both of these reports and the index and these accompanying posts and resources at a6nzcrypto.com slash state of crypto or a6nzcrypto.com slash SOC. The report was co-authored and produced by Darren Matsuoka, Eddie Lazarin, Robert Hackett, and Stephanie Zinn. Before we begin, none of the following is investment, business, legal, or tax advice. See a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. Also, please note that any charts, data, or projections discussed are subject to change without notice, may differ from opinions expressed by others, and are for informational purposes only. They should not be relied upon when making any investment decision. The content also speaks only as of the date indicated, and A6NZ has not independently verified third-party sources, nor makes representations about the enduring accuracy of the information. Okay, with that, now here's Robert to introduce the guests and the episode. Thanks, Sonal. Hi, all. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with Eddie Lazarin, Chief Technology Officer at A16Z Crypto, Darren Matsuoka, Lead Data Scientist, and Chris Dixon, Founding General Partner of A16Z Crypto. The first half of the conversation digs into the findings and also touches on themes such as infrastructure, NFTs, gaming, the creator economy, energy, zero knowledge, and more. That's from our recent Twitter spaces. And the second half of the episode was recorded separately so we could go deeper into the methodology, index, and bigger picture. The first voice you'll hear after mine is Chris, followed by Eddie, then Darren. Welcome, everybody. Hey. Hello. All right. Okay, so we've seen lots of people tweeting various insights and takeaways from the report. But I want to know what your top takeaways are. What's the single most interesting or surprising statistic or trend you came across this year? Chris, do you want to take this one? I mean, I I think the key kind of message to take away is a lot of really interesting work progress made on sort of the infrastructure side around, particularly around the Ethereum ecosystem and layer twos. You know, I think a lot of, you know, kind of the basic framework came from work we did a couple of years ago where um, we tried to look at kind of to separate kind of the fundamental and like the way we kind of think about it is all technology markets have kind of different ways they progress. And there's a lot of focus on financial markets. Um, this could be crypto or non-crypto. This also is true of, you know, kind of other kinds of tech. Um, and then there's sort of the, the fundamental progress of so the technology, of the user, kind of uh, applications, infrastructure. And so the core idea um, with this report, which we've been doing now for a couple of years, is to really kind of look at the fundamentals and to take what kind of appears to be a chaotic process and try to understand it and sort of see the, see the kind of overall logic and so, you know, things like um, the number of developers, the number of applications, the progress of the infrastructure, you know, sort of uh, a lot of computing waves. A key metric is the price to performance or Moore's law and semiconductors is, and an equivalent in the blockchain space would be kind of the, co- the, the cost, gas costs or block space costs for secure high quality transactions. And so 
um, you know, there's a lot of data in there. I won't go through it all. Let Darren and Eddie talk about some of the details, but um, which I think show you know kind of nice progress in a lot of dimensions there. That's great. Yeah. So you're seeing a lot of improvement when it comes to price and performance in Web3, particularly with respect to how blockchains perform. Uh, Eddie, looks like you want to jump in. Uh, there's a ton, ton of things I could pick. Obviously, I'm a little biased. Like, I like I like a lot of the statistics in the report. You could definitely choose many trends. Maybe one to highlight uh, is like NFT buyers. I thought that one's really neat is that NFT buyers has decreased uh, since the recent highs, like a, yeah, in the last year. But they're down a lot less than I think you'd think and down much less than volume, which in, which indicates that maybe there's some new interesting patterns that we started to see unfolding in terms of how people buy them and what exactly they do with them. We've seen a little bit of a trend. This is now more a little more anecdotal, but around more patronage-style models where people are purchasing NFTs in primary sales and using them as part of a way to support a creator directly, like with basically minimal to zero intermediaries. I think it's a really cool pattern. It's a little subtle in the data, but we already have a little bit. Another one I'd point out, if I can do two, is uh, is that ZK slide we have. And we show incredible advancements in the pace of proving speeds, uh, proof sizes, and verification speeds. And these all make it a lot easier to try to experiment with and incorporate two key benefits ZK technology, which is scaling through succinctness and privacy. It'll just open up a lot of space for people to start to experiment with them since now they're finally becoming you know, economically easy to do and fast. We got a lot of feedback on that zero knowledge slide, so we're definitely going to spend some time on that. Um, but I want to linger on something you raised at the outset about the number of NFT buyers, which has uh, decreased since the highs in early 2022, but has actually jumped up in recent months uh, and actually appears to be possibly starting something of a rebound. I want to tease that apart a little bit, Eddie. What What's going on there? Why this difference all of a sudden? Yeah, well, the, the, the key point, and this is a theme of the whole report, right, is if you zoom out, despite the volatility, as Chris was alluding to, there seems to be an underlying order on the product cycle, but also an underlying trend of maybe smoother growth trend, if you squint a little bit, where these technologies come in, they pop, there's chaos, and then there is adoption, right, that comes slowly after. The NFT buyer's slide demonstrates this really clearly. There's basically no activity in 2020, and uh, it only begins in early 2021. Where we've stabilized now is still radically above where we were, right? So that's kind of the big picture trend. Where the excitement is coming in the more recently, like Manifold Open Editions and a variety of other projects have been making it really easy for creators to experiment, not just with new features and new ways that NFTs can be incorporated into their projects, but also with just the process of minting them and distributing them. We've seen a lot of contention on the royalty side. That's a fascinating other topic that we should probably unpack some other time. But despite the royalty piece, primary sales and direct relationships with consumers are being experimented with. And that's, that's great. That's exactly what we want to see. Just for people who don't know, uh, you referenced open editions. Maybe you could just elaborate on that. I'll let Darren say a little bit more on uh, open editions, but it's it's a, a way to create mints that often end up being like a little cheaper, a little more 
uh, in the moment and related directly to current effort by a uh, a creator. Darren, you, you have any thoughts about open editions? Yeah, I'd say the big the the big point to make is that it creates a much more accessible experience for people um, compared to limited editions, which often you know the the best ones just increase in price to a point where. Um, it's uh, pricing out 99% of potential buyers. And so it's a, a cool way to kind of bring more people into the space and kind of drive those organic use cases as opposed to, you know, the speculative ones. That's interesting. Yeah, so it sounds like maybe instead of the big ticket item, the high price sort of uh, one-off sale NFT is now giving away a little bit to something a little bit more uh, open and accessible to to broader audiences. Yeah, and, and I'd also tie this in with what's happening in L2s because it's not a coincidence that you know if if most NFT if if transaction fees are very high, which is absolutely the norm of what we saw throughout a lot of the late 2021 early 2022 period. Uh, if transaction fees are really high, you're not going to be able to do much with very low priced NFTs. Or things that do that experiment with all kinds of new features that maybe mutate state on chain, which is expensive. If gas fees come down and there's more high quality block space at a low price, then you can have cheaper NFTs. You don't have to justify the the expense of a transaction uh, by arguing that it's an investment or some speculatory behavior. Instead, you can do all the cool kinds of things, all the kind of computer behaviors where NFTs are their own programs, NFTs have interesting interactions with other kinds of online objects. Like That's a really cool behavior, and that requires very low transaction fees, which requires scaling, which we're seeing in L2s. So it all kind of comes together in my mind. L2s is a huge meaty topic that we're going to also get into. But before we do that, I got to say, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me in this report is the fact that active addresses is now at an all-time high. There are more than 15 million monthly uh, addresses making on-chain transactions. That's a pretty surprising statistic, and especially when you couple it with a decline in mobile wallet users. It's, it's very odd that, at, on the one hand, you have you know, active addresses hitting an all-time high, and yet at the same time, this sort of you know, big decrease in mobile wallet users over you know, the months from the peaks that we saw in early 2022. What's going on there? A lot of people were curious about this. Why Why are we seeing that odd trend in the data? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I'll let Darren weigh in on this too. But, uh, you know, we, we have to, I admit, we have to go another level deeper and probably find additional sources for underlying metrics to really refine the story about why this is. But, you know, personally, I use a desktop wallet and... Uh, you know, I don't use a mobile wallet in my day-to-day. That might change soon. I've been seeing some really great products launch, like you know, Uniswap's wallet very recently. That's exciting to see, but uh, it's hard to say. You know, I don't know. I, I, I can speculate more about how, like, you know, app metrics can be a little imprecise. The improvements in desktop wallet software and the norm that has been set in crypto for some time about custodying and taking your, uh, you know, taking your wallet experience very seriously and kind of leaving it in secu- more secure. Sp- I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I'd have to speculate. Do you, do you have any thoughts, Darren? 
Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add is we're seeing more applications that are kind of embedding the wallet experience into the app itself, which means that, you know, they're not requiring users to bring a wallet or their mobile wallet, but instead are kind of uh, facilitating the transactions on behalf of users in an attempt to really uh, make it uh, a better user experience that can attract a more mainstream audience. And so that's certainly one trend that we're, we're looking at. You know, Eddie mentioned the Uniswap wallet. I'm also very curious, uh, you know, next month to kind of see what the the numbers look like with uh, with that new one included, because that's uh, you know something we can can certainly do. We'll continue to update the data. We'll continue to you know look at new players. Uh, it's clear that the mobile wallet experience isn't uh, fully solved yet, um, and so we're constantly kind of looking for for new entrants uh, and builders that are. Uh, you know, trying to solve some of these hard problems. But uh, to Eddie's point, we will have to to do a, a deeper dive on uh, some of the specifics there. That's a great point. Just to also continue to tease that apart, you know, another statistic that was in here uh, in the report is how Web3 games generate 23 times more on-chain transactions than DeFi. And there have been a lot of Web3 games that have come out in the past year. I mean, more than 700 so I, I wonder how that uh, that trend is affecting what's going on in the industry right now. It seems like we're seeing this big uptick in gaming, in on-chain gaming. What's going on there? Yeah, literally, you know, first, games, the interaction model of a game is so different from a financial interaction model, right? In a, with your bank or, you know, your other financial services, I don't know that people, like, use them, you know, hundreds of times, thousands of times in a session, so to speak, right? You probably issue a couple transactions a day, you know, through credit cards and other things like that. Some days a little busier than others. But in a game, if you're mutating a lot of state, you, you might do thousands of things, right? So it makes sense that games would generally be more computationally intensive and engaging in their use. Of course, that means we need better scaling, right? That means we need lower transaction fees. And it's worth pointing out that a lot of those, these game transactions, when you go underneath the hood, they're happening on their own networks. They're happening on the scaling solutions. We've been seeing many more games in the last year pop up on L2s and pop, you know, move between them. So that's, that's no surprise at all. And maybe to round it out, like in the history of technology, gaming tends to push the envelope in all dimensions, right? Demand for better hardware drove the development of GPUs all kinds of hardware other kinds of hardware advancements like laser mice and stuff like that were pushed to some extent by games and that's also true of software you know broadband uh, low latency internet connections all these types of things gamers have intense demands and are very open to experimentation as long as it creates great and novel game experiences so i'm pretty i'm a, i'm a big gamer and i'm pretty excited to see how it unfolds there. And it's just not a huge surprise to me, given the amount of interesting you know, economic and uh, composability opportunities there are when you bring crypto into a gaming environment. Yeah, what you said there, it called to mind that meme of that guy with the domino, and he's got the one small domino and the big domino in the end, uh, when it comes to um, you know the way that totally you know, the small domino would be like, NVIDIA's GPUs is helping gamers. And then at the other end, you have like general artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. At, the, at the bottom is like John Carmack fooling around with making a 2D game look 3D and that with Doom. And then at the top, you have like John Carmack making the AGI. <laughs>
One way to look at the timeline for sure. Eddie, you, you, you said a phrase in there while you were talking about on-chain games. You said mutating state. And, you know, I, while that's fine for the computer scientists in the room, I feel like for the more consumer-oriented gamers out there, like, what does that look like in on-chain gaming? Why? Yeah, first of all, what does that mean? Like, what, what can you do in an on-chain game that you can't do in another type of game? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great. So by, by mutating state, I just mean like changing around things, like changing around data, moving around data, manipulating data. Of course, every time someone plays a game, there's a lot of data shuffling around. There's graphics data, there's network data. Someone has to run, if you're playing a multiplayer game, someone has to run a server, and that server is managing the mutations of a lot of data that has to do with the state of the game, what's happening in the game. An interesting concept, and there, we actually have a podcast on this uh, with Ariana and, and me and Sonal, where we talk a little bit about Web3 games and on-chain games. So I encourage you to listen to that if this topic is interesting to you. But the, the basic idea is that when you run a multiplayer game server now, you have to have that run by somebody. And there's a little bit, of course, it's not a big, real big deal in, a, in some senses, but you have to trust them to run that server. And that's, that's no problem. You know, game companies want people to have a great time playing games. But what's interesting is that if you can have that state managed in an autonomous way, like uh, by no one in particular, or maybe just governed by specific rules that are set in place at the beginning of that game or the genesis of that game universe. That becomes really interesting because then you can have all kinds of different people build things on top of that game world or that game state and extend it and remix it and recombine it and take the objects and have them compose with each other in ways that make modding and different kinds of game changes a first-class part of the game. And you don't have to rely on the game creator to moderate it. Instead, you can have the whole game governed by rules that are set in place at the beginning, which means anybody can change the game, but they can't make it unfair, or they can't cheat, or they can't you know, shut down and blow up the game for everybody else. So it's just, to sum it up, it really in brief, it's there are interesting things made possible when no one in particular controls the game server that you couldn't do if only if a specific person is the one responsible for running it. Well, I think and to that point, Eddie, I think the, to me, the most exciting part of that architecture is the composability it enables. And so once you have a, you know, a trustless server, you have an incentive for third-party developers to build on top of it. And you have this sort of, you know, bottoms up kind of creativity where people can sort of build on sort of like the way people build a city or something where somebody builds a core and then people build around it. And, and yeah, you can imagine sort of a, something as source off as a small game evolving into a much larger world and eventually into sort of a set of worlds. So I think, you know, to me that it all starts with a, the trust model of having nobody, nobody running the back end of the game. Yep. That's a really good point. And actually it segues nicely into a question we received do you feel there's enough community involvement in the steering and development of the industry? Um, you know, given what you said about including more network participants into kind of becoming owners and operators of this stuff, is there enough community involvement in Web3 from what we're seeing? Kind of an interesting question. I, I, I admit I'm not 100% sure how to parse it because maybe I'm being a little silly. I feel like crypto is obsessed with the community <laughs> uniquely in a fascinating way, sometimes in a way that's silly, but often in a way that's incredibly earnest and serious and material because, you know, one of the underlying 
core ideas to me is that you can hand control of a project or software or a network or system to a community and like authentically hand them control in a way that can't be done in web two world or in, uh, you know, without legal agreements, right? So uh, are they involved enough? I mean, I think I'd have to go project by project to say, but uh, I think crypto rightly is incredibly preoccupied with the way that communities can become involved and incentivized and owners and collaborators all with each other to develop the future protocols of the internet. And maybe just one data point that we can add from from our report is if you look at participation in DAO governance um, as measured by the number of monthly active voters on Snapshot, which is the most popular platform for uh, DAO voting and proposals, uh, that number has pretty consistently grown even during the bear market, which uh, I, I was uh, surprised to see. You know, 13 million total votes have been casted by almost 2 million unique voters, uh, 78,000 proposals. So the stats just around community-driven governance uh, with these DAOs has been growing nicely. Yeah, that's great to point out. Um, it is pretty interesting to see that going up. Um, it is really interesting to see some of these maintain an upward slope generally, even despite you know whatever prices and the financial markets are doing. Eddie, at the top, you mentioned scaling blockchains, and that's obviously a huge area. And in particular, it has to do with what we were just talking about, about increasing community participation, because if you can scale blockchains, uh, more people can get involved at lower price points. Uh, there are fewer obstacles then to participation. What did we find there? Uh, in terms of scaling? Yeah, how, yeah. how the challenge of scaling blockchains coming along? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. This is one of my, one of my favorite graphs, uh, and this shows the increase in block space on Ethereum L1 being consumed by L2s. Uh, and the, the, the graph shows that 7% of Ethereum fees now are paid by L2 rollups. And there's a, a whole bunch in that category. That's been a, a we, we published this last year, uh, updated it again this year. That has been a pretty steady and healthy trend upward. That to me is the strongest direct evidence that Ethereum is scaling. And we expect that number to keep going up, uh, right? Because uh, as L2 technology improves, as the marginal cost of transactions goes down, there's more things you can do that are worthwhile, more th ways that you can experiment. There's a variety of technological choices represented in that set. We've got optimistic rollups, we have ZK rollups, it's a variety of different approaches. So I, I think it's going really well. I think this year is going to be a year of a lot of discussion around L2s, the trade-offs between them, developer tools around using them, user experience improvements, uh, so that users kind of can abstract or reason about what exactly they're using. It's headed in the right direction. And if, of course, after the recent upgrade, it sounds like the next big Ethereum technological upgrade is likely to focus, at least in part, in tech to help scale these L2s even further. So I'm excited to see that. I'm personally of the camp that radically decreasing the cost of blocks of high-quality block space is a key ingredient in allowing for experimentation that people need to do to discover the new types of products and things that can really go mainstream. So I'm excited for that. Let me repeat that stat you just mentioned, because it is kind of mind-blowing. 
two years ago, we didn't have a report two years ago, but if you look back retroactively at 2021, uh, the fees being paid by L2s on Ethereum was effectively 0%. Now, last year, when it was the first time we put out this report, uh, it was about 1.5%. And now it's up to 7%. So L2s are paying 7% of all Ethereum fees right now. Uh, That's a Big jump. And a lot of that actually happened in the past month. It was 4.5% uh, a month ago, and now it's 7%. How are we expecting these numbers to change moving forward through through the year? Yeah, they're going to be bouncing all around, like up and down. It's far from, like, like, I think like one of the repeated motifs of our conversation in the report is that there's no graphs that are straight lines. Right. So this is not going to be a straight line up or a straight line sideways or down or anything. It's going to have its ebbs and flows. You know, I think... It is funny that the more activity that goes onto L2s, then the uh, cheaper it is to transact on L1. So there's some kind of countervailing forces where you know, if tons of activity, if all the activity moves to L2s, then this actually could, uh, L1 could get a lot cheaper, which could bring in more transactions. I don't mean to get confusing, but point is, I think it'll get, uh, it'll remain a little bit volatile, but in the long term, this is likely to equilibrate much higher than 7%. Eddie, you mentioned an upgrade that's uh, in the works on Ethereum that would help scale blockchains more. Um, it, would, uh, it would be a nice fit for, uh, for L2 progress. Maybe share a little bit more insight about that. Yeah, that, that upgrade many call proto-dank sharding, and it's known as EIP-4844. And it's an upgrade that sets aside a special uh, pocket for data called blob data that's necessary to use in the operation of uh, optimistic rollups, but also to some degree, zero-knowledge zero rollups. And this separate little temporary area of data storage serves the needs of these rollups, uh, but without having to permanently store the data in the underlying L1 in Ethereum, which is what happens now. So it's just a, a different type of mechanism that means we don't have to store permanently what doesn't need to be stored permanently. And that just takes a ton of the pressure off the storage costs because, you know, you need to store less. And so, yeah, what's the, what's the outcome of that? Yeah, it, it's, it's, so it's, it's always hard to say exactly. And I actually think that, like, I'm going to say something and I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. But <laughs> the, uh, so, some think it could drop L2 transaction fees by more than an order of magnitude, maybe even two orders of magnitude. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that that's true and that it makes sense. Uh, The part where I disagree slightly is that I think where Ethereum transaction costs or any blockchain's transaction costs end up is a function of their demand. And as the price goes down, there become more and more things that are worthwhile. Like just to give a kind of obvious example, if it really consistently costs less than a penny to send money on Ethereum or near Ethereum, then payments would all of a sudden become a viable thing again, which was often talked about in uh, early Ethereum, at least a primitive form of payments. If that became feasible, then that would increase demand, which would mean that the cost would equilibrate at the marginal value of using, of, of emitting a transaction. So all that's to say, the cost could go down very significantly. I don't think it'll go down like uh, to an outrageously low amount because then it would be too easy to submit transactions and everybody would be doing them all. Everyone would be doing them all the time. So 
I think uh, the net effect, though, would be much, much, much cheaper, very high quality, very safe block space, which is we've never really had on Ethereum. What you're describing sort of reminds me of that principle in economics where, uh, you know, you might think if you add another highway, it's going to reduce traffic, but actually end up just using the highway more. It invites more people to come uh, and use that infrastructure and, and travel across it. Yep, uh, that's, that's exactly right. Another similar idea is uh, Jevon's Paradox. That's J-E-V-O-N's Paradox that people can look up where technological progress can make a, re- a valuable resource more abundant, but actually increases its demand <laughs> because now there's more of it that you can use for that valuable end. So it's not to say that Ethereum is going to become more expensive because of uh, upgrades like uh EIP-4844, it just means that they may not drop linearly. Like if we get 10 times or 100 times the throughput, that doesn't mean the cost is going to drop 100 times. Yeah, I would expect, I think they call it induced demand in economics. I would expect that. And that's that's basically the pattern that happens with every, with every computing resource. So, you know, CPU, memory, bandwidth, most recently GPUs with AI. Um, you basically have this sort of back and forth, right, between the, the kind of the computing resource and the applications. And so, you, you know, the, the, the computing resource gets more efficient, sort of Moore's Law or some other price-to-performance curve. Um, that then kind of inspires and unlocks new application use cases. Those things come along, right, and they kind of use up that new resource, you know, drive on the new highways. Um, but that, in turn, then creates a sort of back and forth. And that process takes, you know, can sometimes can go in fits and starts. That's one of the things we're trying to kind of highlight in the report, right, is to try to see the long-term pattern. Because it's not instantaneous, right? Like you have the new, you know, new infrastructure comes along. So, for example, famously in the early 2000s, there were all these talks about how there was this quote dark fiber. We had overbuilt um, that a lot of sort of smart people thought we had overbuilt long haul internet fiber, and it would never get used during the 90s. You know, it got overbuilt. Um, of course, you know, then what happened is you had this kind of last mile uh, broadband catch up. You had applications like video, like YouTube in 2005. And then very quickly, we used up all that, that dark fiber and, and much more key playing cables you know, to, to this day. So it's not always a completely smooth process, but I would expect the same thing will happen with block space. That you'll have, you know, as, as sort of 4844 gets implemented, you know, L2s get more sophisticated, other blockchains, just all sorts of various kinds of scaling solutions. That, you know, unlocks new categories. Eddie was talking about gaming earlier, which is a category that, you know, really requires much lower transaction fees than we have today. And then that, in turn, will probably use up that resource and create incentives to create even more of those resources. And I think we'll continue to see that back and forth over, you know, the next decade plus. And this is, you know, it's we're projecting out the future, but, I mean, this pattern has just happened so many times in the last seven years in in the history of computing that... I think we can now look back and 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 observe and kind of learn from that. So yeah, we're going to be going from dark fiber up to dark block space, I suppose. And by the way, uh, at the mention of Jevons' paradox, I saw Scott Commoner's uh, resident economist on uh, Team A16Z Crypto. He was pretty excited about that and threw a, uh, a 100 emoji up there. So you got a nod from from Scott. Since we've been talking about technical upgrades, you know, there was one that actually just went off uh, quite recently, uh, the Chappella upgrade. And of course, there was the merge, the upgrade to POS. 
And this sort of encapsulates the whole transition from proof of work to proof of stake. We captured the start of that in the report, uh, talking about the impact of the merge. Darren, tell us a little bit about that. What were the energy consumption implications of that whole long process that culminated in the merge? Yeah, sure. So uh, kind of as you mentioned, uh, in September of last year, which uh, feels like a a long time ago now, uh, Ethereum transitioned to a new consensus mechanism, which resulted in a drastic reduction in energy consumption. Um, It was more than 99.9% of energy consumption uh, has been reduced. And if you compare that to other well-known products and industries, you can see, and we do this exactly in our, our report, you can see that proof-of-stake Ethereum is very, very kind of low on that comparison. And when you look at something like YouTube, uh, Ethereum now consumes about 0.001% of the energy that YouTube consumes annually. And we have kind of different sources that we've, third-party sources that we've pulled from uh, the Ethereum Foundation. Um, you can compare it against, uh, you know, things like global data centers, which is 78,000 times more than proof-of-stake Ethereum uh, gaming in the USA is 13,000 times the energy consumption of proof-of-stake Ethereum. And just remarkable to to see this all happen uh, in the way uh, that it did. Uh, it was truly a, uh, you know, uh, incredible upgrade um, that I think will will go down in, in history as one of the most significant upgrades in the history of open source software development. You can check out all these comparisons and, and numbers in our report, but really just a cool kind of experience to, to see unfold. And as of uh, uh, a couple of days ago, we now kind of have withdrawals enabled, which I think completes uh, that story with uh, proof of stake. Uh, and just awesome to see the Ethereum community deliver on, uh, you know, these upgrades that have been years uh, in the making. Uh, you know, we're really excited to see that happen. We actually got some questions on this slide. So I figure I'll just ask one. You know, Darren, some people were inquiring about YouTube having a higher energy consumption per year than global data centers and why that would be, uh, given that YouTube presumably runs on uh, data centers. Yeah, and maybe first I'll say, you know, we pulled these from third-party sources. Of course, this stuff is difficult to measure, and so we we recognize that and show these figures really just to illustrate a a point. Now, with respect to to YouTube specifically, um, I will say that uh, maybe one thing that we could have made clearer is that the YouTube number actually reflects the end user devices that are being powered in order to watch these YouTube videos. Um, So that would explain specifically why it's greater than the global data centers uh, because it accounts for specifically the laptop or the phone or whatever that's used by the end user um, in order to watch these, these videos. Now, you know, I always kind of make this caveat because I think the the world is so dynamic and it's hard to kind of measure these different things. But, you know, the energy consumption that's spent to watch a video on YouTube could have otherwise maybe been spent to go get in your car and drive to a movie theater, which I think just further underscores this point that it's hard to measure. And I think that the real win when it comes to proof of stake Ethereum is that it eliminated what was really by definition wasteful energy uh, associated with the proof of work mechanism. Um, And so eliminating what is kind of true wasted energy uh, for a system that is, uh, you know, run much more efficiently, I think is the the big win. But uh, maybe to to answer your question specifically, it's uh, the YouTube end user devices are also accounted for in that number. 
Yeah, and I, I want to throw in Robert. Like, I really enjoy seeing this complaint <laughs> in the, in, from crypto skeptics because we used to hear so much about so many complaints about Ethereum's energy consumption, and that was a that was a big story just a year ago. We were hearing about nonstop and a bunch of different avenues, and that that problem has been solved. It has just been totally and completely solved. And now it's the best complaint has to do with sort of the application of an illustrative specific uh, statistic. Like we've made a lot of progress. You know, the the exact like YouTube number is may or may not be right. It's very difficult to measure. But the decrease in Ethereum's energy consumption is undisputable. And the point is sort of its its size and puts Ethereum in contrast, which a bunch of with a bunch of other means of consuming energy that are maybe less controversial or less disputed out in the zeitgeist. So I, I'd say like the key point sort of stands and is exciting and an incredibly positive development, in my opinion. You know, in addition to all that, Eddie, I think there's also a meta or macro point to be made about the ability to measure this stuff at all. And, you know, the numbers are super clear on Ethereum because all the data is public. And that kind of goes into the whole purpose of the report, highlighting all these public data sources and and showing all the various metrics. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And I, I'd even like, like Darren was saying, I'm not even sure how we would quantify how much energy is consumed by people driving to movie theaters. <laughs> that was never, that's never been like a metric debated. And you know, I'm not saying that we need to or that movie theaters are some problem or something, but just I think crypto maybe gets punished to some degree by the fact that it is so transparent and measurable, which means it can it is easy to scrutinize in public. Look, that's kind of what we're doing with our report, obviously. And uh, I think that's one of its virtues, but it's important to take into its big context which things aren't easily scrutinized, which things are opaque. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a great point. And a lot of these private companies, they don't have uh, this data readily available. Um, Whereas in Web3, a lot of these things, you can look them up. This sort of segues nicely into into privacy, we could talk about uh, zero knowledge cryptography, which a lot that was another slide that a ton of people really latched onto really loved and were sharing. Let's just quickly dive into what we saw there. What's been going on in the field of zero knowledge? Darren, maybe you want to take this one. Or Eddie, I see you on mute. No, no, either. either. Whoever. Go ahead, I, I can say in short that the zero knowledge field is gaining incredible momentum. Uh, this is happening across a, a number of different data dimensions that we track. Uh, one, you know, we look at academic publications and we built out a, a data pipeline um, that allows us to kind of extract this data tie in the metadata and pull out kind of ZK-related publications. And that uh, trend has been uh, very much up and to the right over the last few years as the space has really moved from from theory to to practice. I think uh, more uh, academic uh, people are interested in the potential applications for crypto. Uh, We also looked at GitHub stars across key uh, ZK repositories. That trend has uh, also been very much up and to the right um, and so has the daily transactions verifying ZK proofs on Ethereum. Um, that's kind of a measure of uh, how ZK proofs are being used in production today. And all of these numbers uh, just show really kind of 
big uh, momentum in the the trend, particularly over the last few years. Uh, we also worked with our research team uh, to pull together some uh, specific benchmarks that show that the tech uh, itself is uh, improving at an incredible pace. Just when you look at uh, dimensions like prover time, proof size, verifier time, each of which is kind of important to uh, a ZK scheme in in different ways. That has even just in the last couple of years uh, seen dramatic uh, improvement, uh, which speaks to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier. But uh, that's kind of the the data trends. I don't know if Eddie has anything to add about kind of the development of the the space itself. Yeah, that, that's that's all exactly right. I, I'd say if you look at the advancements in the underlying technical capabilities, like proof size, verifier time, proving time, advancements in hardware. We have some really cool posts on this. Elena Berger from our team has some great write-ups documenting different aspects of how zero-knowledge proofs and zero-knowledge systems have advanced over the last year or two. It's accelerating very quickly, and that's because there's this kind of interesting thing where specific fields of cryptography have been revitalized by interest in crypto. You can see that in the academic data, uh, academic slide, uh, or academic chart that that we have in the report. Uh, there's been this big pop and increase in attention that academics pay. Our research team is an example of that. And uh, there's all kinds of interesting things that can be done. We're seeing privacy systems built out and experimenting using this tech. We've seen all the scaling we've seen in L2, and it's kind of the beginning. Just to add to that, I was chatting the other day just sort of casually with two cryptographers on our team, Dan Benet and Justin Thaler, and we were talking about the history of cryptography. And, you know, it's an interesting field, right? Because you basically had, from a theoretical side, kind of very little happen up until public encryption in the 60s and 70s. Um, you had, of course, significant engineering improvements. So, you know, if you look at things like the codes used in World War II, they were, they were very sophisticated. But they were really just sort of more sophisticated versions of the old kind of cesarean codes, you know, replacing one letter with another. The key feature was you still had to get together ahead of time and and with the with the person you're communicating with and trade the codes, right? And so the big breakthrough with public encryption was that you could now I can send information to somebody else who I've never met before, never traded codes with, just by using their public key, which of course, you know, at the time seemed seemed, you know, interesting, but not that broadly applicable, turned out to be the foundation of SSL and all the kind of encryption we use on the internet. Imagine if every time you go to a website, you had to have pre-gotten together with the website and <laughs> treated codes like it wouldn't work. So it turned out to be incredibly important. And also, you know, a very important feature of public key encryption, right, is it has two use cases. One is encryption, so, you know, kind of privacy-preserving features. And then the other is authentication, proving that, you know, this, this document was actually mine and I signed it. And, of course, the authentication use case is really kind of the primary use case in, in, in crypto, as we describe it. Yeah, which also of course creates confusion. You watch I was watching a TV show the other day and they talked about crypto being private, you know, which of course is actually a difficult only partially solved problem. Um anyway, so I think of zero knowledge proofs as sort of the other in my mind is the other big major theoretical breakthrough in, you know, I don't know, long term history of cryptography really since public encryption. But because it was so kind of obscure and the the method's so complex, it was not very practical. And Eddie and Darren can feel free to correct me. I'm just sort of, you know, on the on the details here if I'm getting it wrong. But 
but essentially it was just so computationally intensive. And so one of the nice side effects of, you know, the kind of crypto blockchain movement is that there's been just a lot more investment in this area. And as a result, you've seen dramatic improvements in these algorithms and the performance. And also, by the way, the other really kind of nice symmetry here is that as with public encryption, there's sort of these dual inverted use cases, you know, encryption and authentication in zero knowledge is also kind of two dual use cases. There's the ability to prove something to somebody without disclosing information you don't want to disclose. That's the kind of where the word zero knowledge comes from. Um, but then there's also this ability to, to prove that you did a computation correctly, which is what where all the scaling benefits come from. So I can compute something on my computer and then send the results and then kind of a quote or receipt that I did that proof. And then someone else can verify that I did it correctly without having to run the computation, which would be much more computationally intensive. Um, so it has all these really interesting properties and it's been around since the 80s, but only kind of practical recently and getting more so very rapidly. And I would expect this to have many other spillover benefits to other areas in technology outside of the space we work in. Um, so I think it's a very broadly uh, important and probably underestimated trend just in the in cryptography and in general kind of computer science. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. You mentioned that this technology is likely or it might spill out into other areas. You know, if we're going to talk about one area that's just gotten so much attention lately, given the advances going on, it's AI. And Eddie, you mentioned a piece from one of our deal partners, Elena Berger. Uh, she wrote about the potential implications of zero-knowledge technology in machine learning. That might be interesting for people to hear about here. Oh, man, I, I feel like we could spend an hour on it. So I, <laughs> I don't know how much we should unpack it, but it's a fascinating one. Uh, I mean, in short, I think, I don't know, I, there's actually no short way to put it, but maybe the ultra shortest way. There's two key parts for me. One is AIs are sophisticated computer programs. And the, one of the core ideas in crypto is who controls those programs. And as people interconnect and interweave these types of programs with important services on the internet and, and throughout the world, you should ask, how are these controlled? How do we trust them? How do we verify them? How do we know what they're doing and how the economic systems built around them work? That's what crypto is all about. So that's a very crypto topic to me. And the second, maybe more specific piece is that when a model makes an inference or puts some output for you to use or for another program to use, there are a lot of reasons why you want to you want to be able to trust that output. And right now, if you trust that output, you're trusting the company and the API that serves that. Uh, but at the limit, you can imagine extreme and fascinating cases where people tweak or modify these complex programs to produce outputs that serve their interests and not just yours. Kind of like how uh, you know, a large social media network might modify the feed to serve their interests. There's no reason why someone couldn't modify an AI model to serve their interests. And you probably want to be able to know that the model is executing exactly what you gave it and working exactly the way that you want. And that that is verifiable computation. And that has been a story, uh, one of the core stories in crypto from the beginning. So I think that AI and crypto really overlap and zero-knowledge technology is one of the ways that we will probably come about being able to verify what AI models do and the economics around them. I just can't wait to see how it unfolds. 
And if you look at some of the data just around the internet consolidation that we've seen, three companies control a third of all global web traffic. Five companies represent 50% of the NASDAQ 100's total market cap. That's up from 25% a decade ago. It's very clear that the internet is consolidating power into the hands of a few giant tech corporations. And AI is only going to kind of make that problem worse. Uh, Now, I think the credible counterbalancing force of Web3 and a decentralized uh, network for compute, uh, I think makes... uh, makes me at least very interested to see how this all unfolds and what role Web3 and blockchain can play in the the current trend. Let's talk about how we can quantify the activity that's going on. So the keystone of this year's State of Crypto report is this accompanying tool that we've created, the State of Crypto Index which tries to consolidate and combine all these different metrics to give you a picture of the the health of the state of crypto. Eddie, talk us through what the state of crypto index is, what it represents. The key thesis to me of the index is that there are product cycles and there are financial cycles. And it's very easy to see a price and to measure the price action of different assets and mistake that for a synoptic view into the health of an ecosystem. The prices can change. That doesn't mean that the builders and the underlying tech is changing and vice versa. During periods of very exciting development, it's not the case that those things will be reflected in the price for the short or long-term. It may actually have very little to do with prices that you see. So how do you tease apart these things and get a sense of how crypto is actually doing? One way that we think about it is that on the one hand, there's innovation. On the one hand, there's adoption. And we think that there's key underlying indicators that you can find from public sources that reflect those things. So I think if you look at the charts that we've shared, these are just some of the key indicators we think are most interesting and maybe most representative of what's happening on the innovation side, the supply side, and the adoption side, the demand side. They're not meant to be perfect. Index is obviously a little bit of a metaphor. It's not like the S&P 500 or some sort of rigorously defined measure, far from it. These are just indicators that we think are really interesting that we look at when we try to get a macro view of how the space is unfolding. And to that end, the way that we blend and calculate them to create the aggregated innovation side and adoption side, we invite you to think of different blends. On our site, you will see a page that allows you to look at each of these metrics individually and to get a sense of how they accumulate together into our larger measures. You can adjust the weights and you can even drop some out to zero because maybe you disagree with how we've blended them together or how we measure them. That's totally no problem. We're not trying to be authoritative here. We're just trying to show public measures that we think are interesting that point at the way we see the product and financial cycles developing somewhat independently. So markets are this interplay between supply and demand. And when you look at a price chart, you know, you go to CoinMarketCap or CoinGecko or something, supposedly you're seeing what people are willing to sell a token at and what price people are willing to buy it at, sort of netting out, creating the price for that token on the open market. But that's really focusing, like you said, on the financial side of things, when also there are these tech markets, these product markets of like, what are builders actually building? What applications are they putting together? How many smart contracts are they deploying? And who's actually using this stuff? Who's transacting with it? 
And so that's why you get that supply side correlating to innovation, the actually what's being built, and then the demand side being adoption, who's actually using the stuff. I think it's a really interesting way to look at a market in a non-financial way because it still involves supply and demand, just at a different angle than people are usually accustomed to. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we hope over the coming months and years to improve and adapt this. We'd love people's feedback, thoughts about interesting types of measures. Of course, we prefer public measures that everybody can see and everybody can understand together. But we'd love to update it. We'd love to refresh it. We hope to add new categories as they unfold. It's just meant to be a wide view that we think is a little bit more legible and a little bit more indicative of what's actually developing than just prices. Darren, walk us through some of the data points that went into here. Sure. So you mentioned we split it out between the innovation, which is the supply side and adoption, which is the demand side. And maybe just to list out the specific metrics that are included in each of those categories. On the innovation side, we look at something we call active developers, which is the number of unique GitHub users who have committed to or forked a public crypto repository during the month. All of these metrics, by the way, are aggregated monthly. We can also expand that set into a category that we call interested developers, which includes anybody, any unique GitHub user that has committed to, forked, or starred a crypto repository. So that is the second category in the innovation bucket. The third category is the number of contract deployers, so developers who are deploying smart contracts on one of the tracked blockchains that we look at. We can also look at something called verified smart contract, which is what we think is an indicator for product launches, because you know once you deploy your smart contract, the first thing that a developer usually does is get that smart contract verified. So it's another indicator of developer activity. We also look at developer library downloads, specifically web3.js and ethers.js and how that trend looks month over month. We look at academic publications. So we have a tool that allows us to extract all of the crypto-related publications from the academic world and track that metric over time. And then we also look at job search trends. So people who are searching the web for crypto-related jobs. And those seven metrics make up the innovation indicator bucket. Again, we track those metrics over a monthly aggregation period and roll those into the index along with the adoption indicators. And just by the way, one thing that's interesting about the innovation indicators, when you look at the charts just generally, a lot of them sustain. A lot of them have been increasing over time and just kind of going up. And it just goes to show that despite the market seasonality or what it might appear prices are doing, what people are actually building is totally separate from that. The building activity continues undaunted. Winters are for building, so they say. That's right. Exactly. And that's a key takeaway from the work we've done here with the State of Crypto Index is that the innovation indicators are much more steady, a lot less volatile than what we're seeing on the adoption side, which maybe is a little bit more tied to the market cycles. And it's a function of everything that we've been talking about, right? The fact that builders tend to stick around, you know, builders keep building in the bear market. All of that stuff, I think, is really quantified by that trend that we're seeing, which is the innovation or supply side is much more steady than the adoption or demand side. It's funny that we might be in a winter and yet in terms of the product cycle, things are going pretty well. There's a lot of really amazing activity happening right now. Is there a place for winter then? Is winter a good thing? I think both sides are important, right? I think the thesis is that there is a 
upside to the hot summer, as crazy as it is, as much as it sometimes financial excitement exceeds our current technological capabilities because it attracts new people who stick around and will continue building, as I think a lot of the metrics that we show demonstrate, they'll continue building even when prices cool down. So the summer winter is how to think about the new entrance, the revolving door of people who come into crypto and kind of see what it's capable of in the long term and want to stick around and help build that. Although, honestly, I don't know that it's as seasonal in the product cycle. Kind of reminds me of California. Weather's always the same. There's no winter. There's no summer. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's such a fit. Nice. Springtime is breaking over here in New York. It's quite lovely. Part of the reason why I think we look so much at product cycles is because financial cycles are just very hard to predict, right? They fluctuate very unpredictably based on macroeconomic conditions, whereas product cycles follow their own internal logic. And it's often based on consumer behavior and broader tech trends that we've seen play out over history. And if you look back since 2000, you can see that good companies have been created in every financial market cycle. And I think that's an important point to recognize here. For example, if you would have decided to ignore tech after the dot-com crash, you would have missed industry-defining companies like Facebook and YouTube that were born in that era. Similarly, if you would have been spooked by the global financial crisis, you would have missed iconic companies like Instagram and WhatsApp and many others. And so we often look at these product cycles and through our own internal perspective that we build, meeting with these entrepreneurs and technologists, the product cycle is something that we feel very excited about and is something that we've seen continued progress despite the down market from a financial cycle point of view. What you can kind of see if you zoom out, yep. and this is in our slide deck, is that although that looks kind of chaotic on the shorter time cycles, when you zoom out, you see a real predictable pattern and steady growth, steady compounding growth overall. And maybe to get a little bit more specific with the data, what's cool about the insights here is that you can actually align these very specific metrics on the same x-axis, the same time axis, and you can see when do the big swings happen. And the key insight that I think comes out of this analysis is that the big swings in things like developer activity, which is measured as the activity that we're seeing on public GitHub crypto repositories, that upswing tends to happen in the months shortly after the price swings, which implies that the price brings interest. And with that interest, that turns into new developers that are building new products. And you can see on the time axis just how the price comes first as a leading indicator for some of the developer activity, the startups, the social media interest often is really triggered by the price itself. And you can visually see that with the data. And just to complete the list so people can understand exactly what goes into this index, on the adoption or demand side, we look at active addresses. So unique on-chain addresses that initiate transactions during the monthly period across the track blockchains that we have. We look at the raw transaction counts over time. We look at transaction fees that are paid by users in aggregate over the period across the different blockchains. We look at mobile wallet users from Aptopia which is a metric that we look closely at. We look at volume on decentralized exchanges. We look at the number of buyers of NFTs each month, and then the on-chain transaction volume for stablecoins. And those seven metrics make up the adoption indicators category. And together, we roll that into the 
State of Crypto Index, which really is just a culmination of all of this data analytics and market research that we do. And we like to bring it all together in a way that is very flexible. We, as Eddie mentioned, give users the ability to update the weights and the thresholds themselves. It's just a, a data tool that is designed to give people a point of view on how the non-financial oriented metrics are performing when it comes to the health of the crypto industry. So something we're really excited to be sharing. That's a lot of metrics. That's a lot of data to combine, to roll up into one single kind of output, one number that sums up the whole state of crypto. Eddie, maybe you could share a little bit about what that number represents. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You should consider it the net percent growth for that category. So of course, we have to pick a time to begin measuring a specific metric. Let me give you an example of like an absurd choice. If you decided to start measuring Facebook's growth, starting from the first user, they've grown to more than 1.3 billion, 1.4, I don't know the latest metrics, but billions of users. If you considered that a percent growth, 1.3 billion percent growth, that'd be a little absurd. You need to pick a specific time period against which to measure growth. Typically what data people do to avoid introducing weird biases as a result of how they start measuring one of these metrics is they'll aggregate to a natural period, like a month or a year, and they'll round it out that way and say, all right, this year we had this number, next year we have this number, and so on, and measure growth against the yearly aggregates. In cases where we could, when there's a long enough time period and it makes sense to aggregate to a nice level of granularity, we choose a starting period to measure growth from there for each submetric. Of course, you can actually, in our website, you'll see you can adjust that period so that if you disagree with how we used our best judgment to decide when you should start measuring percent growth, you can do so. But the point is just to say for each of these metrics, how much did they grow from that starting point? That means they can go negative. This especially makes it not a real index in some scientific sense of the term, but it should be an accurate measure of how to think about how much those categories, those measures grew all together for that, whether that's the adoption side or the innovation side. Maybe just to summarize it, I think the actual value of the index is the weighted average monthly growth of all of the included metrics under certain assumptions that Eddie has gone into detail on, but it's that weighted average monthly growth since 2016 for the included metrics, which we believe is a fair representation of how the industry as a whole is performing, especially given that we allow the users to go in and adjust the weights adjust the thresholds based on their preferences. But we feel it's a, after spending many hours litigating the details of the methodology, we feel it's a pretty fair representation of just simply the weighted average growth of the metrics. That's a great pithy summary of what it's displaying. It's like you're throwing all these metrics in a blender and outputting how much the industry is growing along all these various dimensions. It'll be interesting to see where we're at a year from now. I don't think we really know what it's going to look like does anybody have an expectation? Are we going to be out of winter, into springtime, into summertime, still in winter? Such a brutal prediction. Well, <laughs> to ease it, maybe not from a financial perspective, but strictly based on the kind of building activity you see going on or the sort of things that the index is measuring. That's true. I mean, I feel very confident about the innovation side. I just, I cannot imagine what it would take 
for all the things that we're seeing develop now to not play out. There are going to be more transactions. There are going to be more interesting types of projects that are possible. And as a result, I hope more developers. I see that going very well. The demand side is the crazy one. I just don't know. That's just tied to so many external factors. Who knows what's happening with the money supply, the global economy, oil, like, I, I don't know. But we will be able to track it using the state of crypto index. Chris, what's your sense of how things will shape up in one year from now, whether there will be more innovation, more adoption, yeah. or less? Well, look, I mean, this is what I do full-time and I obviously believe very deeply in it and continue to. I think my experience just in general as an entrepreneur formerly and then as an investor is that maybe some people like Ray Dalio or something can predict macro cycles. I can't and don't try to. So I have no idea what will happen with the economy and potential recession, inflation, all of those things, including prices of any tech assets, whether they be crypto or non-crypto. We just really try to keep our head down and focus on infrastructure applications, technology, founders, working with our founders to make sure they have the resources they need to build what they want to build. And ultimately, they're the ones who build these great things. And given what I see there, I'm very excited over the next year of all the products that will launch. So that, that's what I'm keeping my eye on. And I think it's very exciting. How's the U.S. shaping up against other countries in the world of crypto? In terms of both developer activity and user activity, we're seeing the numbers decrease over the last few years in terms of U.S.'s market share and influence over the crypto industry. The number of crypto developers, as measured by a great report produced by Electric Capital, has decreased from 40% down to under 30% in terms of developers that are based in the United States building in crypto, and that has consistently decreased. Yeah. And this is despite a very strong retention and even overall growth in the number of active crypto developers. So it's not a reflection of the space shrinking. It's a reflection of the proportion of interest moving overseas. Exactly. Chris, you've got this great conceit around this tug of war between two cultures within crypto. In our world, there's at least two, maybe more, but two significant different movements slash motivations of people involved in the space. And our view, as we make very clear in this report and generally throughout the years, is that a blockchain is a new type of computer that has a particularly useful application of building new networks that have a bunch of positive features. So that's kind of the lens by which we view our investing is how can we further advance that mission and hopefully nudge the Internet into a new era where we have networks that are owned and operated by communities that are built through composability, where the bulk of the money flows to the edges, to the creators and software developers who build it. That's what excites us. So in our culture, the computer, the technology vision is primary. To the extent there are speculative markets, that's a byproduct as it is in real estate. And that's fine. I mean, obviously there have to be rules around these things and there need to be strict enforcement and regulation. And obviously, it's not fine when there's bad behavior, as there was with FTX. But I do think it's important to call out this distinction, because I think in the public imagination, these two have been conflated. And that when you see politicians saying, you know, we should ban crypto, which is becoming kind of a meme now, I believe they're referring to the casino aspects of it. I think that if they understood the deeper technological vision that they would be actually quite supportive of that. So that's why I think that two cultures distinction is important and I think not as widely understood as it should be. Excellent. 
Well, thank you all for joining. Tons of great insights. All right. Thanks, everyone. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a6nzcrypto.com. This episode was technically edited by our audio editors, Seven Morris and Justin Golden. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art and all thanks to support from A6NZ Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us and from others, be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go. How ideally would you like to see people using this tool out in the wild? Crypto is an incredible thing. We have all this public data. It's all visible. You can see how different projects are playing out live in front of you. Otherwise, we have to beg companies and startups to share what little information they're willing to. I'd like to see people using that information more richly. And we see a lot of that, to be fair. I'm not saying it's not happening. We see tons of it on social media. People love sharing the latest of what's happening with their pet projects, their favorite projects. But I'd like to see these other types of measures take a larger market share, mind share of the way people measure crypto. The price is one thing, but progress is another. And I'd like people to measure that. And if anyone has ideas on how to make this better or feedback that they can share, just come talk to us. This is the stuff that we love talking about every day. So would encourage people to try it out. Obviously, it's just a data tool. But uh, if you have ideas or feedback or things you want to chat more about, we're definitely open to talking. So keep that in mind. Definitely. I would love to see people create their own views on this, manipulate the data, and then share some of it. Take a screenshot, tweet at us. Also, tell us what metrics you might like us to add or change, why you disagree with us on the default view. I think it's cool that this thing is pretty much open source and people can do with it what they want. I don't really know how people are going to use it, but hopefully they find it valuable. Yep. The way I think about it is always important to have more tools and more data sources and things people understand, kind of a situational awareness of what's going on. But I also think it's what Darren and Eddie created here is important because Going back to this computer versus the casino idea, there's all sorts of numbers that track prices. We don't think about that. We think about the products. People pay attention to metrics. And the more metrics we have that track the fundamental progress, the important progress, the product progress, the technology progress, the better. So people will pay attention to them. And when you measure something, you can optimize it as a community.